Good morning. I'm glad you're here today. My name, if you don't know me, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, glad that you're here with us today. And today we are continuing a series, just a quick four-week series that we started last Sunday called Old School. Old School. And uh, we're going to Old Testament school. That's the idea, right? We're trying to, to learn the plot line, the overall overarching story of the Old Testament. Isn't it true that so many of us uh, and so many in general in the church, you can, you can be in the church your entire life, but never really have a grasp of how the whole Bible fits together. And that's a sad commentary. And as far as I can help it, I don't want to be the excuse of you not knowing the story. Amen. Now, there's still some, some effort on your part. You still have to learn. You still have to engage. Uh, but as far as, as it's on me, as much as it's on me, I want to do everything I can to make sure that you know the storyline of the Bible and how God's plan of redemption fits together. Uh, so last Sunday, we started at a very good place to start in the beginning. And uh, yeah, those of you who are here Wednesday night, who's here for Walk Through the Bible with Pastor Dan? So in the beginning, how's it go? There we go. Got a few of you. The rest of you are just chickening out. You're just like, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't want everybody looking at me. But in the beginning, God created everything. And if you missed Wednesday, you missed a great evening. But we'll try to catch you up. Uh, in the beginning, God created everything, and, and everything was good. Everything was good. Think about it. Everything was perfect, we talked about. There was no sin, no shame, no broken relationships to speak of. Adam and Eve, though, uh, were given one rule in the garden, and that one rule was don't eat from the tree in the middle. But what did they do? They did what you and I probably would have done. They ate from that tree. They were deceived by the enemy, and they ate of it. They took of the fruit, and they ate in Genesis chapter 3. And because of their sin, now everything that God had created good and perfect was thrown into an enduring mess. And so God told them, if you eat of that tree, you will surely what? What's the word? You surely die. And uh, so they took of the fruit. They ate of it. They didn't die. God showed his grace. But then God starts to work through uh, first the serpent, then Eve, then Adam, addressing their sin. And curiously, uh, one of the amazing things to me is that before he ever gets to Adam or he ever gets to Eve... And, and, and talks to them about the discipline that they're going to face for their sin. First, he announces that he's going to fix what they messed up. That's in Genesis 3.15. You know, you, you know the, whole, the, the gospel passage, right? John 3.16. Well, this is the first gospel. Go way back to the beginning in Genesis and take off a number. Genesis 3.15. And it's the, it's the first announcement of good news. Because God tells the serpent, he says... Um, Listen, her offspring, the offspring of that woman, pointing forward to Jesus, uh, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And he was promising he's going to fix this whole mess through the offspring of the woman. And now the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of, the, of Scripture is, is tracing that promise to fruition in Jesus Christ. And so we see it come through a guy by the name of Noah, and uh, then everybody sins and, and they get scattered at the Tower of Babel and all the different nations. And then God chooses a family and he starts with Abraham. And then the promise comes through his son, Isaac. And then his son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, super dysfunctional family. 
Um, I mean, they could have totally been on Jerry Springer and nobody would have batted an eye, right? Twelve sons, they plot to kill one another, or they plot to kill one who's the favored son. And so that instead of killing him, they throw him in a well and they take his torn up garment and take it back to their dad and say, sorry, your, your favorite son's dead. And in reality, what they did is they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But this promise is going to come through a guy named Judah. That's where the promise is going to get traced. But God's going to use their sin against their brother Joseph uh, to rescue his people from famine 400 years later. Or in a few years, four, 400 years. They end up in Egypt, and that's where we pick up the story today. They've been in Egypt now for 400 years. Now, I know there's a whole bunch in the middle there that I left out, right? But my goal isn't to cover every story with you. My goal is to give you the whole plot line so that when you read different passages of scripture, you know where it fits on that line. Does that make sense? That's the goal of this series. So with that, we're in Egypt. We've been there 400 years. Let me pray. And then we're going to dive into the book of Exodus today. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. And Lord, it, it does. It amazes me every time I look at the text in Genesis 3 that um, even in your anger over our sin and your anger over Adam and Eve's sin, uh, your first address to them after that wasn't one of judgment, but it was a promise of hope. That's who you are. You're a God of grace and of goodness. And it has nothing to do with our goodness and everything to do with your goodness. Make that clear again this morning, I pray. Help me, Lord. There's, there's so much content here. Help me to, to teach it uh, um, in a way that makes sense and in a way that's helpful. And I pray that we might leave with a, with a better understanding of your eternal plan to bring redemption to what we've messed up in our sin. Thanks for your grace that you choose to use somebody like me to do that. And uh, Father, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Uh, instead, Holy Spirit, would you change us today? Help us to walk more faithfully with, with you and follow Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. So we're in the book of Exodus. And as I told you, uh, Joseph uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he ends up in Egypt. Well, uh, Joseph, give you a little bit of the backstory here, how everyone else ended up there. Joseph was, uh, talk about a guy who went through all kinds of trials, Right? He was, falsely, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused uh, by multiple people and uh, even thrown into prison for a while. But eventually God uses him and his wisdom and redeems him and put, raises him up to such a place that he's second in command in Egypt, only below Pharaoh. And God, part of the reason this happened is Pharaoh has this dream of uh, these, these cows who get really fat, seven of them. And then seven other cows who eat them up and are, they're really skinny. <laughs> and he's like, what's this dream about? I'm giving you the, the Cliff Notes version, right? What's this dream about? And uh, Joseph interprets it for him. And he's like, well, it, here's what God said it's about. There's going to be seven years of incredible bounty in the land. And the harvest is going to be plentiful and it's going to be fantastic. But following those seven years will be seven years of great famine. And so you should prepare for those other seven years by God saving and, and, re, and making good use of God's blessing in the first seven years. So Pharaoh's like, wow, you seem like a wise guy. You seem pretty smart. You understand all this. How about you be in charge of it? And so that's what happens. Joseph gets put in charge and he becomes second in command only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. 
Well, the famine hits and people from all over the known world start coming to the only place that has food, Egypt, because they had stored it up thanks to Joseph's leadership. And so one of the people, one of the groups of people who comes to Egypt for food is, I mean, total drama, right? It's, it'd be a great, is Joseph's family. Joseph's family comes. And uh, they show up and Joseph recognizes his brothers who had threatened to kill him, who sold him into slavery. Um, that's a good time for a counselor to step in, right? I mean, there's some big, big issues probably happening there. And uh, Joseph recognizes them. He, he steps out and he weeps and he comes back and he's like, hey, not all of you are here because Jacob didn't want to lose another son. So he kept his youngest back and he said, bring back your other brother and your father. And eventually they all come and then Joseph reveals who he is and uh, gives them food to take back. And then they bring back Jacob. Sorry, I got that out of order. They bring back their whole family and the Bible tells us there's 70 of them that come back. And that's where we're at in the book of Exodus this morning. If you turn to Exodus, second book in your Bible, just right away in chapter one, let's read together uh, from some of these first four, five, six, seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Uh, The sons of Israel, Jacob wrestled with God and he had his name changed to Israel. Uh, So the sons of Jacob who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. So his sons Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. That's 11. Je- Joseph was already there. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So his family is extended to 70 people now. And Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Um, See, God had made a promise to Abraham centuries prior that uh, he was going to make him into a great nation with many descendants. And now over this course of these 400 years, that's exactly what's happening. God's kept his promise, that promise in particular to Abraham of giving him a great number of descendants. They multiplied greatly to the point where they couldn't be counted. Keep reading with me in verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Israel, over Egypt, excuse me, who did not know Joseph. Well, why not? Because it's 400 years later. He's not going to know who Joseph is, but it's a new king. And that's what Pharaoh means. Pharaoh simply means king. It's a title. And curiously, Pharaoh, who is always uh, in the face of God, never has his name mentioned, only his title. Isn't that ironic? The guy who wanted to make his name great, who thought he was so great, never has his personal name mentioned in scripture. So we're not clear exactly which Pharaoh this is. Yet there's some... Hebrew midwives who save uh, some of the children who God mentions their names. Pharaoh's name never gets mentioned, only his title. So there was a new king, verse 8, over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, he said to the Egyptian people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and they escape from the land. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, 
Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. One of the things you're going to see here in the story this morning as we get going is that the exodus, which is where we're leading up to, when God rescues his people, you know, Moses, Charlton Heston parts the Red Sea, and everybody walks through. And that exodus event is the defining moment of salvation in the Old Testament. Because everything that happens there points forward to what Jesus does for us on the cross. And you notice all of God's people, the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied. Isn't it true that today that the more there's oppression of our faith, the more the church thrives? You're like, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound good. But it's true. I'm telling you, the places in the world where there's the most oppression, the church is on fire. And and it just, it models and looks forward to the work of Jesus and his church. But look at this. Therefore, uh, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, I have no idea. There's some commentators that say uh, they, they wonder if the, the Israelites were some of those who helped build some of the great pyramids in Egypt. We don't, we don't really know. I don't know enough to tell you yes or no on that in terms of timeline. But just they made them work and do incredibly hard labor. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives... So this isn't working, right? He's oppressing them and they're multiplying. So he says to the Hebrew midwives, uh, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. They get their names mentioned, but not Pharaoh. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Why would he do that? Well, he's afraid. He wants to be sure in future generations it's a weak population and not a strong population of men. That's no offense to you, ladies. It's just talking physical strength in terms of war, right? But the midwives feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. He was furious. He said to them, well, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women, they're thinking on their feet here. I think this is kind of funny. Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. They're just popping them out. They're, they're, they're getting it done. We can't get there in time. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He said, okay, fine, if they won't do it, then every son that's born to the Hebrews, he tells everybody, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. He continues to step up his oppression on God's people. Can you... Now, can you imagine? Put yourself in that spot. Never forget, as we read the text, these are real people like you and I who bear God's image, who have struggles, who have emotion, who have families. Imagine, those of you who are parents, those of you who have a son, your son is born and people from the community rush in and they take him and they throw him in the river. Can you imagine? That's the type of oppression happening to God's people here in Egypt. And they cry out to the Lord for help. And look at chapter 2. It's important to look at the story of, of one of these children who was born. There was a, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, as his wife, a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and she bore a son. 
Okay, we just got some clues that that's bad news, right? It's not going to end well, likely, for this son or this family. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. It's a loving mom. And when she could no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and she dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Imagine this young girl watching all this happen with her little brother. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds. And she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. His sister had been watching. Look at this, verse 7. a shrewd little girl. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Talk about God's grace. And, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, why don't you take this child away and nurse him for me? <laughs> isn't that a, that's only God working, isn't it, that that would happen? She gets her son back, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. That had to be hard. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, let's just keep reading here through uh, chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Remember, they were being oppressed. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. He thought, surely the thing is known. But when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian. He flees to the east. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came, though, and drove them away. See, the, the ladies are going to get, evidently this guy didn't have any sons, he just had daughters, and so they were doing the work that the sons would have done. And when the shepherds came and they found these women at the well, they drove them away. But Moses, look at this guy. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Chivalry's not dead, right? Moses is on it. And uh, when they came home to their father, Ruel, uh, he's also known as Jethro and Hobab, different places in Scripture. He says, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, well, because they, they never came home this soon. They were always the last ones to get water. And they, they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. And he even drew water for us and he watered the flock. Then their dad, look at this. I think this is really funny. He, he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why have you left this man? He's got daughters, all single. He wants grandchildren. And he's like, all the other jerks drive you away. I'm glad you didn't bring any of them home. But this guy's caring for you. That's the guy you go after, ladies. Right? Not the guy who's a jerk, who's playing video games in his parents' basement. 
the guy who's got a job and cares for you, that's the man to go for. Yeah, that's a good place. Yeah, amen. That's the guy you go for. All the dads are like, yeah. He's like, where is he? Why have you left him? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content, content then to dwell with the man. So he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Well, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. I love these next few verses. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God, hearing their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Whatever your suffering is today, I don't know. I don't know it. But the Lord sees it, and he knows. He sees and he knows. Do you see that? And it's right there, isn't it? God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He cares for you in the same way. Well, it had been quite a while now that Moses was away and God is raising up a deliverer for him. And you get to chapter three and Moses is confronted by the Lord in the form of a burning bush, right? You know the story? Now, when I was little, I always thought of the burning bush as a little bush outside my house. We had bushes out in front of the house, little green, I don't know what kind they are, but you know what I'm talking about? Look like a pine tree sort of bush. And they were out in front of the house, and I always thought, if I saw that on fire, I'd just be like, let's put it out. I don't know that I'd, you know, what was it about this bush that was so exciting? And it just seemed so small and not, okay, so Moses saw a burning bush, that's cool. Um, And out of the bush, the Lord speaks to him, and he calls him. Moses, by the way, is about 80 years old at this point. So uh, even if you're up in years, just know Moses didn't really do anything until he was 80. God's not done with you yet, right? And uh, Moses, uh, the Lord calls to him from this bush. And we find out that when when he calls out to him, he says, Moses, uh, take off your sandals for the feet you're standing on is holy ground. And Moses worships. And it's the angel of the Lord. I believe whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, for the most part in the Old Testament, usually that's Jesus before he's put on flesh in the New Testament. And that Jesus speaks to him from the bush and he calls him and he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to rescue my people. I've heard their cry. I know what's going on. You're the one who's going to rescue them. Now, whatever image you have of that, I want to give you another one. And this is from a mini-series a few years ago called The Bible that was on the History Channel. This is somebody using their imagination of what might this have looked like. But, But check this out. I think this gives you a much better picture, maybe, of what that bush was like and why Moses turned to it. Never have let her keep him. And he has deserted them. I will be Pharaoh! 
Moses. that's exactly what it looked like but that gives you a little different idea than maybe the bush you saw in the flannel graph growing up right and uh, they take some liberties there in terms of the text and different things but that picture of the call of Moses and God through the bush Jesus through the bush actually reveals his personal name to Moses for the first time Yahweh I am Moses, it would say, we'd read later that there was never a man like Moses who knew the Lord face to face because of some of the things that are coming yet that he would experience. He knew him by name. Well, long story short, Moses, uh, God, if you read the account of chapter three and following, Moses is a little timid. And he's not so sure that God would really send him to go do it. And he comes up with all these excuses and one of them eventually gets to the point, well, I, I, I don't, don't, don't know if I can, 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 can talk, talk, talk to Pharaoh because I st- st- stutter. And she's like, all right, well, then I'm going to have your brother do it. So Moses and his brother Aaron go, and they go before Pharaoh, and they go to Pharaoh, right? They say, Pharaoh, let what? The Lord says, let my people go. And uh, multiple times they go to Pharaoh. And each time uh, Pharaoh says, no, the Lord hardened his heart. And then each time too, oftentimes, not only would he harden Pharaoh's heart to where Pharaoh would say no, but then he would up the oppression on God's people. And he would make their burdens even heavier and even harder to where uh, rather than things getting easier for them after a deliverer came, things got harder for them. I told you this often mirrors what happens when somebody comes to faith in Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross, right? It's the defining act of salvation. Isn't it true? Some of you have experienced this, that when you start to make ground in stepping toward Jesus Christ and obeying him, suddenly there's an enemy after your soul who ups the oppression on you. And it gets harder and harder and harder the more obedient you are. Counter to what maybe you might see some people teach that following Jesus makes your life all great and wonderful and easy and you get all kinds of money in your bank account. The truth of the matter is that Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. And it's a hard choice. 
And it's not always easy. But in the end, it will be better if you'll trust me. And that's what happens. And so there's 10 plagues and it culminates with the death of the firstborn son of all those in Egypt. At the Passover, right? And God gives Moses instructions for all the people and he tells them, here's what's going to happen this week. You're going to uh, take for yourself a lamb from the flock, a spotless one, without any blemish. Then you're going to bring it into your home and you're going to examine it for a few days. And at the end of those few days, uh, you're going to kill it. Now imagine you bring a little sheep into your house. It becomes like a pet to your family for a few days. And you maybe name it, likely name it. And then at the end of those three days, now suddenly uh, you're to murder it. And to slit its throat, drain its blood, and roast it in bitter herbs. And he said, then you're going to eat of it. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to paint it on the doorway of your house. And you'll bake bread to go with it, but without yeast, because there's not time for the leaven uh, to raise the bread, because you're going to have to get out of here in a hurry. Pharaoh's going to drive you out. But here's the deal. On this night, anyone who who follows my command and paints the doorframe of their house with the blood of the lamb, my wrath will pass over that house. Right? But for any home who does not, their firstborn son will surely die. Well, you get to that night. They celebrate Passover. They paint the doors of their homes. But of course, all the Egyptians, no one did. And uh, you wake up in the morning to cries and wailing and screaming. And Can you imagine? And their firstborn son had died, including Pharaoh's. Everyone's who didn't paint blood of the lamb on their doorframe. And so Pharaoh finally says, fine, yeah, not only can you go get out now. And God had promised long ago, we didn't look at this, but he promised when they left that they would leave with great abundance of possessions. And it got to the point, the Egyptians were so sick of all of this and all these plagues, they were, they were giving all their wealth to the Egyptian slaves and saying, get out of here. And so they, they just plundered the Egyptians and left town. Well, Pharaoh's heart, still incredibly hard. After they get out, what do you suppose he's going to do? He's going to keep upping the oppression. (laughs) And he chases after them. And he chases them up to the the corridor of the Red Sea. And they get right to the shore. And now suddenly the people are like, oh, come on, Moses, really? Didn't you have a map? Why'd you lead us here? It's a dead end, dude. We're going to die. Why don't you just leave us back there working? At least we wouldn't die in the wilderness. Were there not enough graves in Egypt you had to bring us here to die? I think is what they say. And Moses says, hey, just relax a little bit and watch and trust the Lord. He's going to lead us through. And today you're going to see a mighty act and you're going to see all of Pharaoh's army die. And so he goes to the edge. The Lord tells him to raise his staff. The waters part. They cross the Red Sea. And as soon as the last one's across on dry land, imagine that, this is walls of water. They get to the other side, they turn around, and Pharaoh's army is coming after them, and splash. What would that have been like watching that? Watching the waves ripple until finally it kind of calmed down, and you realize it's over. We're free. Well, they are free, and God provides for them, and they wander through the wilderness, and um, God actually... uh, provides food for them in the wilderness through uh, something called manna. 
Manna is a Hebrew word that simply means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. It would just show up on the ground in the morning. And I think I told you this before, the Bible, the way it describes it, it tasted like fried honey cakes, which to me sounds like elephant ears. So it probably tasted pretty good or funnel cakes. And uh, so it tasted good, whatever it was. But what, what is it? Man, what is it? I don't know. What is it? Let's just call it that. Go get some of the what is it. But they, God provided that for them, it says in the text, for 40 years while they were in the wilderness. And uh, he provides for them in miraculous ways over and over and over. And what he's doing in rescuing them from Egypt is, remember that promise he's going to fix everything in Genesis? And then he starts to work it through a guy named Abraham. And he promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to give you a great land. Well, he's already multiplied him. He's already made his name great. Now the only thing left in this promise is to give him back, the, give to his descendants the land that he promised to Abraham. So God is leading them out of Egypt and he's going to take them to this promised land. Are you with me? God's taking them there. But before they get there, they have a little pit stop at a place called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is actually where, Je- where uh, Moses saw the burning bush and was originally called into ministry. And they get to Mount Sinai, and God's going to give them some instructions for how they're supposed to live once they get into the land. It's kind of like a, you know, kind of like before a big football game. The coach gets everybody together, and he's like, uh, here is the game plan. Here's the battle plan. Here's how we're going to act when we're on the field. Here's what we're going to do when we walk into the stadium. And here's the battle plan. Let's go. Are you ready? Go team. And in a sense, God's giving them those instructions here at Mount Sinai. And he does it through something you and I know as the Ten commandments. Well, if, if we would go read uh, this account, we find out that Moses goes up Mount Sinai and the, the mountain is covered in smoke and in fire in the presence of the Lord. Here's a picture of a volcano in Mexico about two years ago called Mount Cervantes. I wonder if it looked like this. Well, Moses is up there and God speaks to him the Ten Commandments. And the text tells us in Deuteronomy when they're repeated that they were spoken in the hearing of everyone. That all of the people in the camp could hear God give Moses the Ten Commandments. Nobody would have missed out on this. And so Moses gets the Ten Commandments and then God gives Moses some further instruction. But Moses is on this mountain uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if, if your leader, let's say, we'll just, we'll pick, we'll say Pastor Kirk instead of me, because that sounds bad. You go, Kirk is up on top of the mountain and he's been there for 40 days and the mountain looks like this. What do you think of Kirk? He took a bad step around that volcano, man. He's gone. He's gone. Well, the people started asking what happened to Moses. And so they go to Aaron. Well, they, they, they start to rebel and they say to Aaron, uh, make for us a God to follow. And so he takes their gold, he throws it in the fire and he crafts this golden calf and the people begin worshiping. And after 40 days, Moses comes down and he sees the people and he, on their way down, he and Joshua, he hears a chant of singing and celebration in the camp. And it's like, what is that? And he gets there and finds out uh, they were worshiping this golden cow, right? You know the story? And they get down there and the people have rebelled. Imagine all these things they had seen God do for them. All the plagues, parting the Red Sea, providing manna in the wilderness. And it only took a few short days, a couple weeks before they were like, "Eh, I think Moses is gone. Uh, Why don't you make us a cow? We'll worship him. 
you know, and we, we criticize them, we kind of laugh about it, like how could they do that? But isn't it the truth that we do the same thing? We see God provide for us in ways over and over and over in incredibly miraculous ways. And then when it comes to the point of taking a step of faith, we go, yeah, I don't know. That's a little scary. I'd rather just go back to what I know. And that's what the people do. And they worship this calf. Well, Moses comes down and uh, the text says his anger burned hot, which uh, means he was ticked. He took the the stone tablets that God had written the commandments on. He threw them. Moses had a little anger issue. And uh, God would address that with him later. Um, But he he takes the calf. He grinds it up. He he puts it over the water. And then he makes everybody drink it. Um, And they rebelled. But yet God was still gracious to them. He gives Moses a new set of tablets and more instruction and how to build the tabernacle. And God wants to dwell among his people here in the wilderness. And so finally, after dealing with all this, they finally set out to a place called Kadesh Barnea, where they're going to enter the promised land. You with me so far? Egypt, 400 years, guy named Moses leads them out. All these plagues, finally the Passover, death of the firstborn, Passover, by the way, if, If we have some time, I'll go back, but it totally points to Jesus. Uh, They cross the Red Sea. God rescues them. He even provides for them while they're wandering in the wilderness, while they're moving. Then he he appears to them personally and gives them instructions and the battle plan for exactly what they're supposed to do on Mount Sinai. And now they're ready to go, even after their sin, and they get up to this place called Kadesh. And while they get there, uh, Moses has a plan. God gives him a plan. He's like, here's what we're going to do. Before we enter the land, I want every tribe, all 12 of you, uh, and this is like 600,000 fighting men we find out in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is just a a census of all the fighting men. So they know who they have when they're going to fight and go take the land that they haven't been in for 400 years. He's like, uh, here's what we're going to do. I want one one man from every tribe, your your strongest dude, and we're going to send him to spy out the land so we know what we're getting into. Turning your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. So the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 13, verse 1, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Never forget that. God says, I am giving it to them. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent from them, sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord. All of the men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. And it lists all of their names. In verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up into the Negev, the south country, in other words, and go up into the hill country. So they're coming in from the south. See what the land is. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or if they're weak. Whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or if it's bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or if they're strongholds, if they're fortified cities, and whether the land is rich or if it's poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage. Hey, and we've been eating manna for a long time, so bring some fruit from the land back with you. Right? You got the picture? 
They're on the cusp of something incredible happening. So these 12 guys go in, for now is the time of the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up. They spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labo Hamath. And it talks about how they went up. Well, verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. For 40 days, these 12 guys were, the Navy SEALs were in spying it all out, right? And they come back and they came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now watch this. These 12 guys go in and spy out this land that God told them is a really good land, but they've never seen it. He says, but it's really good, I'm telling you, and I'm giving it to you. And if you've seen me do anything, it's provide for you and care for you and keep my word, right? So you can trust me in this. This is a really good land. I'm giving it to you. It's going to be awesome. And so here's what they said. They came back and they gave a report. They said, uh, well, we came to the land which you sent us. And dude, it flows with milk and honey. Now, not literally. It's not like a box of Honey Nut Cheerios. But it's like um, flows with milk and honey means there's places for the cattle to graze for us to get milk. And there's incredible fruit and produce for us to eat of the honey of it. And they said, and by the way, this is its fruit. They brought some fruit back. Wait till you see this here in a second. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified. And they're very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. All the ites, the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Now imagine, you're all these people, millions of people, right? And uh, you get a report back. Hey, it's a great land. Yes, but the people are huge. Oh, they're grumbling. What are we going to do? So Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And I, I, when I teach this in my class at Grace, I tell the students, this remind, Caleb reminds me of Scrappy-Doo. You ever watch Scooby-Doo? Scrappy is like the little puppy who has no fear of anyone or anything. Like, put him up, put him up, let me at him. Look at this, look at this is Caleb. He said, oh, hey, be quiet. Let's go up at once and occupy it for we're well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him, Caleb was one of the 12 spies. The men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that that they had spied out, saying the land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. And, And we said to ourselves, like, we're like, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Well, verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, Then the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why did he lead us here? Why did he take us from Egypt? Why did we follow this guy? I thought he knew what he was doing. He had no idea. We got right up to this, and you know what? I don't trust him anymore. I don't think he knows what he's doing. He only means harm to us. uh. Oh, that we had died in the land of Egypt, they said, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to just go back to Egypt, back to the good old days? And they said to one another, which weren't that good, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation and the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. See, there were 10 of the 12 spies who came back with this bad report, but Joshua and Caleb had a good one. And here's what they said. They said, listen, the land which we passed through to spy out, it's exceedingly, it's an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't fear the people of the land, for, they're, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? See, back, uh, God gave them instructions at Mount Sinai, these Ten Commandments. And if you want to summarize those, you've heard me say this many times. If you want to summarize the commands, it's if you choose to sin, you're going to choose to suffer. But if you choose to obey, then you're choosing blessing. And God brought them up to Kadesh and he sent in the 12 spies and they're coming back and 10 of them give a bad report, two give a good report. And really the people of the congregation now have a choice. They've seen God provide in so many ways for them. So many ways. Ways that God has, they've never seen God work before. He's provided. And they go, wow, wow, wow. And they come up to this moment, this seminal moment of, are they going to choose to obey and choose the blessing that God has for them? Or are they going to choose to sin and not follow the Lord and not follow their leaders and suffer and ultimately die in the wilderness? Well, they didn't choose to obey. They didn't choose what God was offering to them. And look at, look at what he says. He says, how long, Moses, will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of everything I've done for them? Why won't they trust me? He was going to destroy them and start over with Moses, but uh, Moses intercedes and he prays for them. And God relents and says, okay, I'm not going to destroy them, Moses, but that entire generation who refused to obey is going to wander for the next 40 years and die in the wilderness. And they will never see the blessing that I promised them. And it was all because of their attitude of disobedience. And their refusal to step out in faith and trust what God was offering to them. And I think it's a warning to us today too. That we're brought to these places of choice. And we can choose our attitude. Will we choose to obey the Lord and trust him and step out in faith even when I don't want to or I don't feel like it, but I trust him? Or will we choose to sin and choose to live in the desert for the rest of our lives and then allow God to give that blessing that he wanted to give to us to the next generation? Well, sadly, that's what happens. And they choose to disobey and they wander for 40 years, about over a million people in the desert. Dan told us Wednesday night, a startling fact that if you, somebody figured it out, you know, a couple million people in the desert that need to die before God will give blessing. That counts up over 40 years to about, see, one year for every day of the spies in the wilderness, in the, in the promised land, right? They get one year in the desert. And uh, it would account to about 67, 69 people a day dying. 
for 40 years. No wonder they wandered. Loved ones, what we're going to see next week is that finally God is still faithful, but not until the next generation. They get up and Joshua is going to lead them in. But I would encourage you, we've, we've preached through this passage years ago, that God gives us a choice in our attitude of either obeying him and, and following uh, even the leadership that he's given to us. Or we can say, nope, not doing it, don't want to, feed in the mud, I'm, I'm just choosing a rotten attitude. And God's word's clear, if you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Let's not wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die. Amen? Well, it's kind of a gruesome picture where we stop today, but God's plan is still in motion, and we'll see it pick up next Sunday with a guy by the name of Joshua. So let me pray, and we're going to sing, and I'm going to give you some instruction for uh, some things happening here the rest of our service today. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. And uh, Lord Jesus, help Help us to follow you and to trust you and to step out in faith. To not, uh, to not be like the Egyptians, or the Egyptians, excuse me, the Israelites in the wilderness who hardened their hearts. And rather than following you moving forward, they just wanted to go back to what they knew, which was really never that great to begin with. Help us keep our eyes on you, moving forward, following your plan. Holy Spirit, I pray you give me great wisdom as I lead to follow you, to know your plan and to have courage to follow you through all of it. Pray for those today, Lord, um, who've never trusted you, that today they might uh, turn in faith to Jesus Christ and be saved. Uh, We pray now as we sing, we look forward to a great rest of the morning as we send off Fred and Abby and uh, a great time of celebration for us as a church. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.